Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you again this week. <clears throat> I look forward to it every week. Uh, just a couple of quick things. Uh, as you know, we, this, we have two services now for the garden, this 9 o'clock service and the 11 o'clock. And, you know, just want to give thanks to God. Last week, we had a little over 90 people total for our 11 o'clock service, which was really cool for the second week. So, again, if there's ever any time where you get up at 5 in the morning and your prayer time runs about 4 or 5 hours too long and you want to come to 11 o'clock, we have that for you. So my name is Joe Davis. I'm the lead teaching pastor here in the garden. We're continuing this series called Move Over, which is our fall and spring lectionary series that will end up with and lead to the gospel of Mark. Uh, and the idea of move over is to make room, make way for Jesus. And this week, we're talking about, well, let me explain. Let me explain what that is about, okay? We're studying a passage from the book of Ruth. And I really wanted to call my sermon Baby Ruth because I just love that candy bar, but I just couldn't get it to work no matter what I tried. So get that off, and we're just going to call it Loving God's People, okay? I just wanted to use the picture somehow, and I, I just said, you know, just be honest. Just say you wanted to use it and couldn't. So that's what we're going to do. But today, we're going to be looking at Ruth chapter 1, verse 14 through 17. And so I'm going to look at this, look at this passage. I'm going to, it's actually going to focus more on 15 through 18 as we read this. So, And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge or where you live, I will live. Your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. And where you will die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw this, she was determined to go with her. And she said no more. So this concept here, the book of Ruth is a great book. It's talking about this woman who is actually uh, a Moabite woman. And so what we like to do in the garden is we like to take a passage of Scripture and break it down into three ways. As you guys know, the historical answers the questions. What about man? What did he do? Why did he do it? The theological is what about God? What did God do? And why did God do it? And then we can only once we understand the historical and the theological can we actually really draw what the devotional application of a passage is, which is what do I do and why should I do it? So let's look at the historical aspects of this first. Who were the Moabites? Ruth is a Moabite woman, okay? Basically, the first off you have to understand, they were a cast-off nation. They were the result of an improper relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. Lot was Abraham's nephew. Abraham was Lot's uncle. And some of you guys might remember, if you've been coming to church for a while uh, in your life, you know the story about Lot's wife who looked back on Sodom and Gomorrah and the salt and, you know, a really bad story, right? So, but basically, the Moabites were like, like kind of like a... a an incestuous kind of half-breed Jewish type of nation that was kind of a cast-off nation. They weren't really considered real Jewish people. And actually what happens is later on, the Moabites try to curse the Jewish people, the, the, the Israelites, because there's animosity there. Kind of like what happened between you know, Ishmael and his brother. There's some animosity between the Moabites, as you could probably understand, and the Jewish people. The Moabites feel slighted. They feel like, you know, you think we're second-rate citizens? And it's kind of a, a bad situation, okay? So that's kind of who the Moabites were. Now, who was Ruth? 
This is an amazing story, okay? So basically, I want you to understand that Ruth is a story about a woman from Moab. And so to start with, you have to understand who Naomi and uh, Elimelech are. Elimelech is Naomi's husband. They are 100% Jewish. They are as Jewish as Jewish can get. The matzah bread and everything is all in their house, okay? They're as Jewish as can be, and they have two sons. Now, these two sons marry two Moabite women. One is named Oprah, not the one you're thinking. You get a car, you get a car, you get a car. (laughs) They marry two Moabite women. One is Oprah, and the other one is Ruth. And once they marry these two Moabite women, these are Jewish people who marry two women from this cast-off nation, and for whatever reason, Naomi and her husband, with their two sons and their two Moabite wives, they decided to settle in Moab. And shortly after that, Elimelech dies, and the two sons die. And now it is just the mother-in-law, Naomi, and Ruth, and Oprah. It's a very sad, tragic story, actually, if you think about it. These guys, they come, they bring their family into the land of Moab. They marry these two women. These two women leave their Moabite homes, their Moabite families. They leave where they were from. It'd be like somebody leaving Sarasota to marry somebody from Bradenton and staying there. (laughs) Terrible idea. (laughs) Terrible idea. I love ripping on Bradenton. It's so fun. Does anybody here from Bradenton raise your hands? Uh-oh. <laughs> my bad, yo. My bad. My bad. So anyway, it's a terrible, tragic story, right? Ruth and Oprah are here. These guys come over. They get married. And all of a sudden, it says shortly after, the father-in-law dies and the two husbands die. That's a sad story. By the way, something else about who Ruth was. Did you know that Ruth ends up being King David's great-grandmother? Isn't that interesting? This woman from this cast-off nation that was married to one of Naomi's sons who dies ends up later being the great-grandmother of King David. God's grace is pretty amazing. So, that's the historical aspect. Now, what does Ruth do in the midst of this grief? Here's another aspect of the historical application of it, right? Understand what's going on here. These women have lost husbands and sons in a very short manner of time. And Naomi says, listen, I've got nothing here for you. I'm just a poor widow. I'm not your mother-in-law anymore. I want you to go back to your family in Moab. Go. Please, I have nothing here for you. I don't want to burden you with my life. I don't want, to think, I don't want you to think you have to take care of me like I'm your mother. I don't want you to have to go through that. And Oprah, who probably certainly is grieving because her life has been turned upside down, Oprah decides, you know what? I am going to go back to my family in Moab. But Ruth stays. And you see what Ruth said in that passage, right? Ruth decides to cast her lot in life with Naomi, her mother-in-law, and God's people no matter what. I don't know why. Perhaps it's because she's heard about the great promises to Abraham and his offspring, and she wants to be a part of those promises. Perhaps she has seen God working these incredible miracles in these imperfect refugees from Israel. 
regardless of what her initial motivating factor was for staying with Ruth, she is clearly a woman of faith. Despite being a woman who's not Jewish, who would be considered in most, for the most part a Gentile, she will not leave Naomi's side. But instead, she pledges to go with Naomi and to serve the living God. And to, not only that, not only is she staying with Naomi, but she's turning her back on the Moabite gods. She says, I'm identifying with you. I'm identifying with your nation. I'm identifying with your God. <clears throat> it's an amazing story if you think about it. And if you know a little bit about the story of Ruth, there's a lot of stuff that happens later on that's so amazing. But this is a real sign of who Ruth is. So that's the historical aspect. You've got an understanding of what's going on. Let's look at the theological aspects of this. Moab, who wouldn't want to go back to Moab, right? I mean, that's a great place. Listen, God is the reason that Ruth was even there in the first place with this family. Even in what is a terrible tragedy, what we know about God is this. God and his people, who he has called, whom he gives the gift of faith to, is that all things work together for those who are the called. That's a quote from Scripture. She's gone through three heartbreaking, gut-wrenching funerals. Her other sister-in-law has left, and then she just says, I'm going to stay. God brought Ruth into that family, and God is the reason that she even stays. Why did Oprah not forsake her old land? for God's people. And why did Ruth forsake it? See, guys, listen, Ruth doesn't get credit for this. Don't look at this story and say, man, Ruth is a great woman with this faith. Because it's an act of faith. And what is faith again? It's a gift from Heavenly Dad. So Ruth does not get the credit for staying. God enables her to stay. Because without faith, Ruth does what Oprah does does what all of us do, which is to turn our back on God's people, turn our back on God, turn our back on the Scripture, turn our back on promise and redemption, and pursue our own life, our own plan, our own agenda. This is what God did in this story. God made Ruth fall in love with Naomi and God's people. So that's what God does in this passage. Now let's get to the fun part, the devotional. If you love me, feed my sheep. I want to offer you some thoughts and concept about this passage that might help you as you leave this building today. First of all, loving God's sheep is a discipline that is a byproduct of faith. Because listen, I want you to understand something. It was not convenient for Ruth to stay with Naomi. As a matter of fact, it was very irrational. She's still a young woman. She has family and people in Moab she could go live with, and she decides to stay with this destitute mother-in-law. Loving God's people is not always convenient, and it's not always cost-effective. As a matter of fact, loving God's people is a waste of money many times. 
We try to run church like a business, and I understand we have to be good stewards of our money, and we try to run our lives very efficiently, some of us, and you know, to watch our money and to watch our budget. But you know what? Loving God's people has a hard time fitting into a budget. It has a hard time fitting into our planner. It has a hard time fitting into our life goals. Loving God's people always seems to get in the way of what logically could seem best for us. But you know what loving God's people is? It's being together. Worship times, small group times, hanging out, just enjoying one another. There should be in your heart, this is, a, this, is a, this is something that might scare some of you, and it might really encourage some of you. We were talking about this in our Thursday night small group that I have with some 20-somethings that go to our church. We were talking about this at Panera Bread uh, in Bradenton, as a matter of fact. It was a missions trip to... You know, <laughs> just, just kidding. I love talking about Bradenton. It's so fun. We should have a desire to be with God's people on a continuing basis, even if it gets in the way of our busy life. Do you understand that Ruth made a decision that was not easy? And we struggle sometimes making the decision just to be here on time or be involved with the church at other times that's not just a worship service. Guys, there should be a desire to be with God's people on a regular basis. That's the first thing about loving God's people. A second thing, we should be providing for each other. You know what happens, though, a lot of times when we get involved with God's people, instead of providing for each other, we are looking to be provided for. What programs does the church have to offer? What can people in the church give me? I'm in need. We should be looking instead, if we really have the love of God's people in us, the love of the brethren in us, we should be looking not to be provided for, but to provide for God's people, for each other. And you know what else we should be doing if we love God's people? <clears throat> we should be sacrificing for each other like Ruth did. And listen, I'm talking about big sacrifices. I'm not talking about small ones. Oh, sure, you can have that pen, no problem. I have been overwhelmed sometimes in my ministry when I've been going through difficult times, when my family's gone through difficult times, the astounding generosity and sacrifice some of our closest friends have given us when we had nowhere else to turn. And it wasn't that we went and looked for it, they just said, here's what we're doing for you. And it blew me away every time, and it made me fall so much deeper in love with God and his people. Do you understand that when you sacrifice for one another, you create this intense bond, this, this emotional bank account, this, this track record of commitment that is really hard for the world to overcome because the world is not sacrificial. God's people can be. See, these should all be natural outflows of the gift of faith. And when Heavenly Dad has called you and gifted you with faith and passion for his people, that is what becomes the most important thing in your life. A true Christian, guys, a true Christian cannot help 
but fall in such deep love with the people of God that you will forsake even other worldly relationships for them, including friends or family. You will find that deep relationships in your life, if you have been given the gift of faith, if God has truly saved you, you will find that deep, intimate relationships you're going to be more wired to having them with God's people than the world. That just happens. And if you're a child of God, you know what I'm talking about. So what begins to happen is you begin to understand that loving the church isn't always easy, but it is always required. Now, that's the scary part, because this is why it's a supernatural thing. It's a supernatural discipline that only God's chosen people can accomplish. Do you understand the church is really hard to love? Because we are not good people most of the time. We're forgiven, but we're not really good. And it's hard to love the church, humanly speaking. It's a supernatural miracle that we can develop the discipline of making ourselves love God's people through time through provision, and through sacrifice. And if you are lukewarm to being with God's people, to loving with, when I say being with God's people, I mean on a regular basis. And I don't mean just showing up to church and hearing some songs and leaving. I'm talking about being with God's people. If you are lukewarm to that, it should be a very troubling sign for you. You know how I can tell you that? Because John tells us this. Look at this passage in John 13. This is Jesus talking in the Gospel of John. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know what Jesus says? Forget all the other commandments. This is the one I'm giving you. And I know you can't do it unless I live in your heart. And you know how you're supposed to do it? Do it like I love you. Wait a minute, does that mean we go to the cross for each other? Not necessarily, although it could go that direction. But what it really means is this. When Jesus was walking with his disciples, his living, his walking, his breathing was for who? Them. This is my commandment that I'm giving you. The new one is, you love one another just like I have loved you. And people will know that you are my disciple because of the way you love and treat one another. I got another one. John writes this one too. This is a great one. This is in 1 John. This is John talking. He gives a little more explanation about this passage. We know that we have passed from death to life. What does that mean? We know we have been given the gift of faith. We know that we are children of God. We know that we are on our way to heaven. We know that we are connected with heavenly dad. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother, and what does that mean? All those things I described for you. Time together, providing for one another, sacrificing for one another. He who does not spend time and sacrifice and provide for his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Wait a minute. You mean if I just hate the church, I'm like a murderer? What that means is I'm a sinner without grace. He who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. Okay, back up. You know what he means by that? 
If somebody goes around killing people, it's a pretty good sign that Jesus does not live in their heart. Would you agree with that? That's the parallel that John is drawing here. This is so important that you love your brother, and if you don't, you're just like a murderer. You would never say a murderer is a Christian, would you? Well, you can't say of somebody who doesn't love the body of Christ is a Christian either. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, not just talking about death on the cross, but his whole life, his public ministry. He laid down his life, that part of it too, not just the dying, but the living. He laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, not just our dying, but our living. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, oh, listen to this, guys. But whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? He's a murderer. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Understanding laying down your life isn't necessarily dying for them. It's meaning you are willing to live for them. But you know what else happens? And this is the part that really bugs me as a pastor. Maybe one of the reasons I've been fired three times. I don't know. (laughs) Sometimes we love the church more than we love the people of the church. I can't stand it. In fact, it makes me sick when we love a building or sacred areas within a building or sacred furniture within a building more than God's sacred people. You understand what I mean? There is nothing in this building or that building or in this campus that is more important than any one of God's people, period. And we as a church should be willing to sacrifice any of it if God calls us to do that for one of his sheep. Including any of these beautiful instruments, that big beautiful marble table that's in the sanctuary in there, the organ, this room, anything. All of it is irrelevant when it comes to which we should love more, this or God's people. And you know what else happens in the church? We begin to love programs more than God's people. We begin to love money in the church more than God's people. We begin to love agendas more than God's people. We begin to love meetings more than God's people. And what begins to happen is church slowly turns away from being about loving God's sheep and it turns more towards loving what we can build for ourselves. And it becomes, if you will allow me, like the Tower of Babel. Francis Chan is a great pastor. Well, he's not a pastor anymore. He's an author and a speaker, but he's He's really gifted. He's one of my favorites. He was telling a story about how one time this concept of loving God's people really began to work in his heart, in the heart of his elders in his church in Simi Valley. He said one time, he said, it hit us right in the face. We were in a room, and I was explaining to them how I wanted to learn how to love them in a way that was just so otherworldly. And he said, one of my elders finally got it before I did. And he was a wealthy man, and he had an expensive car. And I was talking about loving each other through sacrifice, and he started crying. And he took the keys to the expensive car, put it on the table, and said, if any of you need it, let's sell it right now. No, nobody needed it, so he didn't sell it. But you know what? 
he was willing to. And so I'm going to close today with a Francis Chan quote that should really leave you wondering. Maybe it encourages some of you. Nothing you do in life will ever matter unless it's about loving God and loving his people. Nothing you build, nothing you say, nothing you do, nothing you accumulate, nothing you accomplish matters at all unless it is geared to and about loving God and his people. As a pastor, you know what loves me, what I love to hear more than anything from one of my people in our church? I just can't get enough of being with you guys. When I hear a young believer say something like that, some say, say, boy, I just want to be there. Can we get there more often? Well, no, I'm too busy. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't be. I don't know. But I love that. Guys, this is what I hope you understand today from this passage, that what Ruth did was supernatural. But the same God that enabled her to love Naomi in this ridiculous, irrational way is the same God that can give you an overwhelming passion for his church, for his people. A passion that makes you want to spend time. A passion that makes you want to provide. And a passion that makes you want to sacrifice. Before we sing our